Good morning, and welcome to the February 6th edition of Mountain Money. I'm your host, Roger Goldman. I'm here with our, my co-host, Doug Wells, on this snowy morning. Morning, Doug. Good morning. Yeah, we are not used to going like nine days with no <laughs> snow, so thank goodness we got more snow. Well, the snow's good news for those of us who are here in town. My understanding is that those who are on I-80 coming east are having a pretty rough time. I-80 is now backed up from Mouth of the Canyons all the way to Mountain Dell, although interestingly enough, 224 doesn't look too bad. So if you get through that part, it's going to be okay. And while you're sitting in your car, Doug, what are we going to be able to talk to them about, hopefully? Well, today we're going to talk with Arthur Henry, with author Henry Sanderson about his new book, Vote Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. And then we're going to spend some time with Kerry Barker, who is the founding manager director of Cross Creek Advisors, a venture capital firm. We're going to end our hour with a discussion of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Voices program, which explores the issues affecting the small business community ahead of President Biden's State of the Union address tomorrow night. All this and more on Mountain Money. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Mountain Money. In January 2021, General Motors boldly announced that it would be producing only electric vehicles by 2035. Ford announced that it would produce 40 to 50% electrical vehicles by 2030. And of course, Tesla produces nothing but EVs. The move to EVs is largely seen as a critical step in the effort to fight climate change. And EV production will clearly boom in the years to come. But perhaps the component most critical to the production of EVs is the lithium-ion battery. And the ability to produce those batteries is leading to a global scramble to source the critical raw materials and develop the needed manufacturing expertise. Author Henry Sanderson paints a vivid picture of the complex supply chain for EV batteries in his new book, Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. We're very lucky to have him with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Okay, thank you for having me. Okay. Henry, the book is filled with vignettes from your travels around the world. So let's talk a little bit about what motivated you to write the book and how long did it take to do all those travels? Yes, I was motivated to write the book because I, I, I came to understand that making this energy transition, um, electrifying the global fleet of, of vehicles is an enormous undertaking. I mean, it has to happen very quickly, right? Much quicker than previous energy transitions. Um, so we need scale and, and we need speed. Um, and if we're going to do this, it requires building um, whole new supply chains and expanding supply chains that stretch um, around the globe. And at, and at the beginning of these supply chains is raw materials. And actually to build all the batteries we're going to need, um, to build uh, you know, wind turbines, um, solar, etc., we're going to need more raw materials. So my book, what I wanted to do is open people eye, people's eyes to um, the challenges of these supply chains and some of the geopolitical uh, issues with these supply chains and really make the point that you know clean energy is not just as simple as um, you know putting up a solar panel um, we have to build new uh, industrial supply chains and in the west we have to you know re-industrialize in it to a certain extent so that's why I uh, wrote the book you know I think a lot of us have been reignited with our interest in the auto industry and kind of the history of the auto industry and, and back in the day the auto industry was the startup, was kind of the internet startup landscape. There were hundreds of car manufacturers early on. Uh, and some of those car manufacturers actually here in Salt Lake City uh, were electric. Uh, and Salt Lake City had electric cars uh, back in the day of Henry Ford. Those quickly went away though. Why did it take us so long to get to the point where electric cars were practical? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question because you're right, over 100 years ago there was this brief period where um, electric cars were, were vying for, for, for market share with, with um, internal combustion vehicles 
And it got so, so close, right? If you look at the number of models, um, if you look at the cost at the time, um, and, and there was a brief period where we could have seen electric vehicles at least for sort of inner city travel and, and uh, gasoline for, for longer journeys. Um, but I think what happened was, number one, the battery um, wasn't quite there and it kept disappointing people's expectations. You know, there was a lot of publicity at the time that, you know, uh, Henry Ford or Thomas Edison were going to invent a, a great new battery um, and it just didn't quite happen in time. And then also the grid in the US uh, wasn't quite advanced enough. I think if the grid, um, you know, perhaps 10 years earlier, um, you know, it probably would have would have taken off. And I think then what happened was um, once the gasoline car uh, dominated, it just got better and better and better. Um, and obviously manufacturing scale, prices came down. So it became a moving target that was ever harder for electric vehicles to, to catch up with. Um, but we did see in the 1970s um, a lot more effort um, focus on electric vehicles. Um, but unfortunately, in the 1980s, oil prices fell, and that kind of fell by the fell by the wayside. Um, we saw General Motors in in the late 90s, etc. But it wasn't really until Tesla that uh, you know we saw um, you know a profit proper effort, I guess, to make electric vehicles sexy, right? Which was very important, and also a viable proposition that people would want to buy. And, and the critical development, as I understand from the book, was the the creation or the industrialization of the lithium-ion battery. How did that happen, and, and how important was it? Yeah, so I think it's one of those really uh, fundamental te uh, technologies of the 20th century, and actually the people who uh, invented the chemistry won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for, for, for this, uh, for their you know, work, because it is so important. It enabled first in the, in the 90s the uh, the head of um, consumer electronics, right, portable consumer electronics, camcorders, um, you know, and then later mobile phones and smartphones. So, you know, it, we wouldn't have all these smartphones today if it wasn't for the lithium-ion uh, battery. And then um, what Elon Musk and others uh, realized was, you know, these batteries were, were good enough and, and cheap enough to, to bundle together um, into a vehicle. And, and what's so important about um, electric vehicles now is for the first time in you know, as you said, over 100 years, they work um, really well and they can do um, they can do most things that, that people want. So that was a sort of critical uh, tipping point. There, w you know, there isn't too much of a um, sacrifice in buying one now. Um, you know, so that's the sort of critical things that lithium-ion batteries have, have enabled. So you, one of the things that you do a great job of highlighting in your book is just what's involved in getting the resources needed to make lithium-ion. Uh, batteries and uh, you also talk about in the internal combustion engine when that came to be that yeah Ford made a lot of money but the person that really made a, a killing was John D Rockefeller selling oil to everybody so who's making a killing selling the materials needed for lithium-ion batteries and what are the conditions like for everybody else involved yeah, so it's a really interesting question because at the moment, the, the, the people who are mining uh, lithium uh, are making huge amounts of money and they're just printing money at the moment because lithium prices have gone up over 800% over the past two years. And the reason they're in such a good situation is, you know, all these automakers, um, they can release, you know, however many press releases about electric vehicles or pledge to introduce so many millions of electric vehicles, but without the raw materials, they can't you know, they can't build these electric vehicles, they can't build the batteries. So at the moment, if you're sitting on a lithium mine that's producing, you're, you're very, very rich and you're very, very happy. Um, and also what's, what's happened at the moment is uh, a Chinese company, CATL, that produces almost, 
you know, most of the world's lithium-ion batteries, they're also making great profits at the moment because they're one of the only uh, sort of big players uh, in town. So uh, all the automakers are rushing to their door to sign uh, supply agreements. So you're right, at the moment we don't see, um, yes, Tesla has, has good margins, but we don't see for a lot of the other um, electric vehicle manufacturers that they're making uh, good money, especially in China. And what we see is those who are sitting on the resources like lithium are, uh, you know, are, are making really good profits at the moment. And I think uh, you know, Elon Musk has even said so himself. He says, you know, you're minting money if you're if you're in lithium. Uh, we want to come back to talk about the sort of raw materials like lithium and cobalt, but you, you touched on something that's really interesting, which is on the one hand, we have raw materials. On the other hand, we have manufacturing expertise. And C, you, you talked about CATL. Can you explain to the audience a little bit about where CATL is and how the Chinese got to where they are in terms of their position in the battery manufacturing area? Yeah, so it's, um, it's of critical importance now that the West um, starts to starts to manufacture um, its own batteries. You're right, it's a manufacturing issue. If you go to these battery factories, um, as I said at the beginning, um, this energy transition is about speed and scale. And these are huge, um, you know, billion dollar factories where uh, they're full of robots. You know, I guess people used to think of China as being a place for cheap labor. Um, these these factories in China are all automated, right? They're all they're all robots um, making these batteries. Um, but what what CATL and and China uh, did is, you know, just just I guess just earlier on um, than the West, they they poured a lot of subsidies into the electric vehicle industry, um, into the battery industry, and they were also quite protectionist as well. They introduced rules that said um, essentially only Chinese uh, battery companies could get the the subsidies from Beijing. Um, so, so they poured a lot of money in and, um, you know, protected um, their markets. Um, but also, you know, CATL, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of um, innovation there. Um, and actually, if you look at the company, it descended from a, a, another company that made lithium-ion batteries for mobile phones. Um, so it has a history of lithium-ion battery manufacturing. So now the issue for the West is, um, you know, how to catch up, catch up to this lead that, that China has. And I think we've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act very much... Um, in a way, uh, copying China's model, which is throwing a lot of money at this industry and, and really the government setting a clear policy um, direction that uh, private investors and private entrepreneurs can follow. So, you know, frankly, that was one of the surprises to me in the book. I figured given Elon Musk early move into the gigafactory and recognizing the importance of the batteries and building such an enormous scale here in the U.S., right? Utah was in the running for the gigafactory. Ultimately, Nevada won that. But how far behind are we? And let me just share with the audience the concept of for a factory producing something, it's, it's this idea of the minimum efficient scale. What size do you need to be in order to produce at the lowest cost? And at some point, the cost can go no lower, right? Uh, paraphrasing Elon Musk, the base principles, the core materials cost a certain amount. Are we at half of the volume that we need? Are we at 10% of the volume that we need? How far behind are we? To getting to this lowest possible cost? Yeah, it's a good question. So you're right about Elon Musk. Like he's he's one of the few people I think that you're right. Very early on, realized that w what the U.S. needed was was a a giant battery uh, factory. And I think the Nevada uh, factory uh, was a, was very early, right? And 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 was a significant um, investment into the U.S. market. It's just that China has. Um, you know, dozens and dozens of the of these factories. So um, while, while Elon Musk was early, um, if you look at it now, China produces about 76% of the lithium-ion batteries. 
Um, so you can really see um, their dominance in, in, in the market. So yes, Elon Musk was right, but we just needed, we needed more uh, Elon Musk type investments in the US and we're getting them now with the, with the inflation, um, inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, in terms of um, you know, battery, battery supply, um, yes, we do, we do need to invest and investment is, investment is happening. Um, but what needs to happen is to bring the, the cost of these batteries um, so that the cost of electric vehicles can come down to, to a meaningful, um, you know, meaningful level so, so average people can afford um, electric vehicles. But yes, we do need um, a lot more investment, especially, um, especially if you layer on top of the geopolitics, if we don't want to be buying uh, Chinese batteries, then we're going to need uh, you know, a lot more investment in Europe, um, a lot more investment in, in the US. But I, but I would say on the battery side, uh, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk, um, they've just announced to build a massive 100 gigawatt hour uh, factory in Nevada. So on the battery side, it, it is coming. Um, what's more tricky is um, the raw materials and the processing of the raw materials, a lot of which which is done in, in China. So even if we build batteries in the US, um, we may need to still import some of these materials from, from China. Um, that's the real issue is the whole uh, supply chain from raw material uh, to battery. You know, in a sense, as I was spending time with the book, it was almost t two different books. One book was about manufacturing and one book was about global supply and the way in which these natural resources, where they are and how they are extracted. And, and you have a lot of stories about incredible corruption and exploitation. Let's, let's talk for a minute about lithium. Where does lithium come from now and who controls that supply? Yeah, so lithium um, is probably one of the most interesting uh, minerals that we need because it's a, it's it, before electric vehicles it was quite a small market, and so electric vehicles have really turbocharged demand for lithium, um, and suddenly this market needs to um, you know double and uh, triple this decade to to meet the demand. Um, so so right now lithium, the biggest producer is Australia, uh, followed by Chile. Um, but the issue with Australia is all that lithium is, is sent to China at the moment to be processed um, into materials that can be used in, in batteries. So yes, Australia is, is the biggest producer, obviously a Western ally, but it all goes to China uh, to be processed. And then Chile, um, there's, there's two basically dominant companies in Chile, um, Albemarle, which is a US company, um, and then SQM, which is a Chilean company that I write about in the book, which um, has this interesting um, history um, in, in Chile and, uh, you know, very much uh, for many years was controlled by the uh, son-in-law of the, the former uh, dictator Pinochet. So it's quite a controversial uh, company um, in Chile. Um, so those are the sort of two big producers. But what we're seeing now in this race to produce lithium is countries like Argentina, a lot of investment going um, into Argentina. Uh, we're seeing lots of you know, investment going into Africa. And then in the US, uh, we've seen some really exciting developments with um, Department of Energy um, issuing a provisional loan to a project in Nevada. And then General Motors just last week investing 650 million in a lithium uh, project in Nevada as well. So we're seeing uh, projects popping up all over the place, but that's, that's what we need. We need all these projects to, uh, to meet the demand. Lithium prices have gone up over 800%, as I said, over the past uh, two years. Um, so it really is a scramble for lithium at the moment. Let's, let's talk about cobalt. Your, your cobalt chapter begins with a wonderful vignette of a group of cobalt traders um, meeting with people who didn't really understand that market. Can you share a little bit about cobalt and where that's coming from and the status of that market? Yes, yeah, so cobalt is one of the um, more problematic um, ones, I guess, than, than, than lithium in the sense that 
Um, over 70% comes from Democratic Republic of, of Congo. And what I write about in the book is, is the real awakening that automakers had when they realized, um, you know, if they wanted to make electric vehicles on the scale that, um, that the world needs, uh, wait a second, you know, where are all these minerals going to come from? Who controls them? And, you know, they found that, you know, all the cobalt's coming from Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, you know, some of it's uh, mined by hand in very dangerous conditions, often by, by children. Um, but then a lot of a lot of it is, uh, you know, uh, mined or processed by Chinese companies. Um, and then the bits that, that aren't in those two groups, um, Glencore is a, a Swiss company um, that um, is, is the biggest cobalt uh, producer in the world. So um, e each of these sort of suppliers has their has their different um, issues or had their different issues um, at the time. So. That, you know, the DRC um, is an issue because it's not only China dominates a lot of the mining there, but but also there's problems, as I said, with with child labour, etc. So I think it was a real eye opener uh, for electric vehicle manufacturers uh, to realise that they're going to rely on this one country so much. And, and the book talks a lot about the way in which uh, Congo, which is a relatively poor country, the way in which it has been exploited, and that um, uh, it, it sounds like uh, government, corrupt government officials have basically given away a lot of that cobalt and, and uh, the, the, the value and sliced it off for themselves. Yeah, so there is, um, you know, there are, there are a lot of questions over um, the contracts that, um, you know, under Joseph Kabila, the, the former president, um, you know, the contracts going to the Chinese, the contracts going to, to Glencore and, and others. And now what the, what the, new, um, the new president is uh, taking a much stronger stance with the Chinese, and he's essentially trying to uh, renegotiate a lot of these contracts that were signed with, with Chinese companies. Uh, you know, perhaps they were too generous, et cetera. So actually the largest Chinese uh, mine in the DRC, um, as far as I know, was not able to export, um, is still not able to export because it's locked in a dispute with the DRC government. So you're right, there's a lot of, um, internally in the DRC, a lot of questions about these historical contracts um, and how are they awarded. Um, you've got to remember, though, um, 20 years ago, um, long before uh, the rise of the EV at the moment, um, you know, DRC had a, had a brutal, um, brutal uh, civil war, so it needed to attract investment. So a lot of the, um, the early contracts, they perhaps, you know, gave, gave away too much because um, they needed companies to come and invest. So, yeah, there's a whole host of um, historical issues. And what we're seeing now is the U.S. becoming much more interested in, in the DRC. Um, we saw Secretary of State um, go there. Um, so the U.S. is trying to, um, you know, re-engage with this country because it realizes the strategic importance of, of all these minerals. And if you're just joining the conversation and wondering why is Mountain Money talking about cobalt and and copper and lithium, uh, it's because we're speaking with Henry Sand Sanderson. He is the author of the book, Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. So obviously the lithium ion battery, uh, hugely important to technology uh, in the world today, all the way from powering our electric cars to powering our phones. Um, my under when I was younger, my undergrad was in engineering and I worked for five years as an engineer and one of, one of my clients, I worked for a Fortune 500 chemical company, and one of my clients was, was trying to develop the next generation battery, the battery that would come after lithium ion. And that was 30 years ago. And here we are still without a good alternative to lithium ion batteries. And, and from that experience for 30 years, I have been saying the next technology bottleneck that the world's going to face is batteries. People in the battery space have known this for half a century. 
Where are we on that? Is there anything on the horizon that will get us away from this race for lithium, the race for cobalt? Yes, it's a, it's a fascinating question, and you're right. For so many years, um, we've read about uh, scientists have worked on different battery uh, technologies, but the lithium ion is is a case of uh, perhaps not the the perfect, you know, the the perfect chemistry getting scaled up, but because it works, as I said earlier, and uh, you could get decent range in an electric vehicle. Um, is the technology that's uh, getting the most investment, uh, getting scaled up, and uh, that's really what we need to see. But you're right, um, people are always thinking ahead and, and new battery technologies. And I think an interesting one is sodium ion batteries because uh, sodium is more, you know, lithium is abundant, but sodium um, is more abundant. You know, it's essentially salt, right? So what, what's so interesting is we're seeing sodium ion batteries come out in China at the moment and the supply chain um, building for sodium ion batteries because what's so critical to understand about um, climate change is you, you can't just have stuff in a lab, right? You need, to have, um, you need to have scale and you need to build a supply chain for new technologies. So sodium ion, we're starting to see that and I think that could be um, an interesting technology that you know, it's probably not going to, you know, be in a very powerful electric vehicle. I'm not sure you're going to get a lot of range from a sodium ion battery, but who knows? You know, we never rule out innovation and, uh, you know, what, what people can do with technologies. But the, the most important thing is it's starting to scale up in, in production. The supply chain um, is building. So sodium ion, I think, is, um, is really uh, quite a key technology to watch. Um, and if you're thinking more like, uh, you know, super powerful electric vehicles or longer range electric vehicles, solid state batteries, which um, they replace the liquid electrolyte um, in the current lithium ion battery and they use um, other sort of materials and potentially even lithium metal um, in, in, in the battery as well. Could, you know, we could see um, cars with, you know, 600 mile, um, you know, range um, at the end of this decade or later this decade. So there are these technologies um, coming out. But, but, but I think is what, what, what is so critical is that, um, you know, for big markets like, like India um, and China uh, need cheap um, batteries that use abundant raw materials. And then uh, for obviously for the, for the luxury electric vehicle market, you need the more powerful uh, you know, battery breakthroughs. Um, and there's some really interesting ideas out there where people are now in one electric vehicle combining different battery chemistries. So you may have a, a cheaper battery with no cobalt nickel for most of your day-to-day -day driving and then a more powerful uh, battery cell uh, for when you want to do uh, you know, a longer trip uh, city to city in the US, for example. So there are lots of um, uh, ways to, to tackle this problem. We've been speaking with Henry Sanderson. He's the author of Volt Rush, the winners and losers in the, in the race to go green. Henry, thank you for joining us, and Mound Money will be back in a moment. Please back stay tuned. Thank you so much. The path from an idea hatched in a garage or to an IP... Sorry, I'm going to start over. The path from an idea hatched in a garage to an IPO traded on Wall Street winds through several stages. Somewhere between borrowing money from friends and family to start the business, and then the IPO is typically the stop with a source of funding known as venture capital. Here to chat with us about how venture capital works and how she came to find uh, and head, to found and head a very successful venture capital firm right here in Utah is Carrie Barker, the founding manager, the founding managing director at Cross Creek. Carrie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the program this morning. 
So, Carrie, I'm, I'm friends with uh, somebody at, at your sister firm, Wasatch Advisors. Let's start with that because it's a very unusual origin story for a venture capital firm. Your group spun out from a company that invested in public equities. How did that happen and, and what, how does that help give you superpowers in this space? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I did start my career at Wasatch Global. Um, I was really lucky to have met the late Sam Stewart, um, who was teaching as an adjunct professor at the U when I was a student there. And as your listeners may know, Wasatch invests in um, mostly, you know, their, their, their legacy was uh, smaller cap uh, growth stocks um, in the public markets. So uh, I started at um, Wasatch right out of school and I started as an analyst and became a portfolio manager and one of the managing partners of the firm. And my you know, role there was really selecting public investments for the small cap growth investment strategies. And I was a generalist investing across all industries, but really focused on tech and healthcare. And you know, Cross Creek was formed originally as a wholly owned subsidiary of Wasatch and later spun out. And I think um, it is pretty unique. Um, our whole team spun out of Wasatch and, and has built expertise obviously in the venture markets. And I think that combination of public markets experience and our you know, private market focus is, uh, is really a superpower um, because of the area we're focused on. We're not focused on that you know, two guys and a dog in a garage and a business plan. We're very much focused on that company that, um, you know, was that five to 10 years ago. They've been funded by, you know, great VCs that have helped them grow up to a company that's seriously considering becoming a public company. And at that stage, uh, we can be very helpful because most venture capitalists are very good at getting companies started. They know less about public markets and that's where our expertise is, is helping those companies cross over, you know, thus the name Cross Creek, cross over from their uh, private company to being a successful public company. Yeah, and let me just add one thing quickly just to give the audience the background story. So Wasatch invests in small cap publicly held companies, companies that you can call your stockbroker and buy. Um, and so it was a natural step for you guys to move down one rung and say, let's bring this expertise of what it takes to be a successful IPO and let's invest in those companies. Is that a fair addition uh, to that explanation? Absolutely, that's that's exactly right. Okay, so let's let's try to help our audience understand. I mean, obviously, you just mentioned that you're beyond the two guys in the garage and the dog stage. Give us, can you give us a, a war story or two, an example of a company that you were able to take uh, from that stage into the public markets? Absolutely, and it's probably important to understand first that we invest not only in these later stage companies, but we also invest in other venture funds. And that's really how we become aware of some of these great companies that we think have IPO prospects. You know, one, um, a lot of the companies that we invest in are not household names that your listeners would be familiar with, but maybe I'll talk about one that we did many years ago, because I think it's probably a product that a lot of people have used. So we were investors in a couple of venture managers. Um, you know, Kleiner Perkins is one that a lot of people are aware of and another great group called Scale Ventures. And they had both invested in DocuSign. 
and you know DocuSign's an electronic signature company that many people now use to electronically sign documents so you don't have to you know be in person to do that wet signature and we'd been tracking the progress of DocuSign through our partner funds and we'd become increasingly convinced that this was going to be a large market and that DocuSign was becoming the you know the the in that market. So we do target these companies that we think have the profile to be strong IPOs and public companies and we felt DocuSign met that profile. Um, through our partners we had the opportunity to invest in the company um, privately and then we worked with them to prepare for their IPO and become a public company. So that's um, you know that's uh, you know the model of kind of what we're looking for. Um, and you know, many of our companies do get acquired along the way, don't become public, but that's really the profile of, of what we're seeking. And, and just to take it down another level, you invest in a company, do you all, how do you help their management? What role do you play beyond just giving them money? Well, it's interesting. Most venture capitalists talk a lot about their value add and how they help the company, you know, maybe on their go-to-market strategy or they're you know helping them identify customers and we don't we don't claim to do any of that we're not <laughs> operators um we get involved in this very late stage and we help the company uh get ready to go public and that takes on many forms um the mentality of being a public company is very different than being a private company uh for example when you know private companies have very you know venture-backed private companies have very aggressive stretch plans and if they make 90% of these aggressive plans you know the investors and the board are, are usually pretty excited uh, on the public markets I'm sure as you all know when a company announces that they miss their earnings even if by a very small amount the stocks go down dramatically um, a lot of very upset investors so helping companies really get to that quarterly cadence of very conservative guidance delivering on their promises and having that public mentality is one of the examples um, of just one of the things we work with them on but there's also a lot of tactical things getting ready for the financial reporting required to file quarterly um, you know statements with the SEC uh, and be ready to meet, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley and some of the regulatory requirements of being a public company and meeting the, the board requirements to have an independent board that reports, uh, you know, to the public shareholders. You know, there's just a lot of things that are very different about being a public company and, you know, right up to selecting the bankers that are going to help a company go public and understanding um, that choice. So there's just a lot of things involved that uh, we work on with our companies as they move down that road. Yeah, and it's it's not the dream for the uh, the founders that it used to be 20, 30 years ago because of everything you just mentioned. It's very complicated uh, and, and very time consuming and typically not something founders frankly care a lot about, right? They care about building a great company. So Roger asked you for a brand name company that Cross Creek is invested in. Uh, and that's fun. That, all the new that's fun for our audience. Uh, but I want to ask you a, a related question, but different which is tell us about a home run. You know, it's typical in a, in a venture fund, one or two companies makes or breaks the fund. So tell us about one or two of your big winners. Well, um, you know, we actually, that we call that kind of the power law in venture and most venture firms are built on one or two big winners. 
we actually aren't structured that way because we invest in later stage companies we're looking for a lot of base hits we're looking for companies that 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 big home run comes out of the 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 investors that took the risk to invest on the two guys and the dog in the garage and end up with a 50 or 100 extra return. so maybe maybe um, tell we're us investing in companies that are they're getting ready to go public um yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, given that, tell us about a company you invested in that you thought was going to be a base hit but ended up being a triple. Um, you know, a company that is uh, people might not be as familiar with is a company called Bill.com. Um, they help uh, small and medium businesses literally pay their, their bills. It's an account payable software platform. You know, that's a company that we thought was a very good company, was going to be a great IPO but turned out to be even better than we expected um, for a variety of reasons. One, I think they just executed very well. But another reason was, um, you know, frankly, uh, COVID, um, people suddenly were not in the office and having a good software platform to pay their bills mm. was was something that they, they urgently needed. So that's an example of one uh, where we did maybe better than we expected. Kerry, market conditions in the publicly traded world have been rather rocky over the last period. What are some of the current trends you're seeing in the venture world? And how much does that rockiness in the public market affect what you do? Oh boy, yeah, valuations for the recently public high growth, you know, venture backed companies have been absolutely crushed. They got mm. very extended in 21 and early 22. There's been a super hard correction. Um, you know, those stocks are down way more than the markets and those that chose to come public through a SPAC are even worse. Um, all that obviously affects the venture companies that have already come public, but it affects the private companies too. The private companies have been reacting to this public downturn. They can't go public right now. The, market, the public markets are you know, closed for IPOs for the most part. And a lot of these companies are not yet profitable. They need capital. They don't want to raise capital at the current you know, valuations reflective of the public markets. And so you know, they're doing layoffs. They're reducing the operating expenses. They're trying to avoid raising cash right now. So, Carrie, one of the things I mentioned, I, I know some people at, at Wasatch, and I have a lot of respect for Wasatch. My friend there is, we have a mutual friend in Eric Bergerson. Uh, and one of the things I've been really impressed with Wasatch is their ability to embrace people that have great ideas and allow the breakout to happen in a way that's a win-win for both partners. Oftentimes, that's a very tumultuous conversation in period for a company so wasatch you were part of wasatch wasatch helped with your leadership help create cross creek and now you and a bunch of people from wasatch are at cross creek there's another uh mutual fund company another investment firm ensign peak that did something very similar that would be hard to do in most companies what do you think it is about the culture of Wasatch that permitted the, the, the organization to embrace that and make a win-win out of it as opposed to a break the company event? Um, I, I'm not sure I quite understand your question. So Wasatch has had two that I know of, two successful spinoffs from its core business. You, normally, if you wanted to break away oh, and start I a venture you firm. you meant Grandeur Peak. Grandeur Peak, thank you, thank you. Okay, uh, the enzyme part threw me off. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is a real testament to the amazing culture at, at Wasatch. Um, I think, you know, Wasatch is just an amazing research-driven organization 
and a thoughtful organization. You know, Wasatch put itself on the map by not chasing .com. And, um, you know, as a growth stock investor, you know, that was a, a really difficult decision, but the right decision. And I think also supporting, um, you know, supporting these groups ourselves and grandeur, um, you know, is just a, a part of uh, who they are. You know, we're a little unique because we, we were completely different than Wasatch. We invest only in private companies and Wasatch really invests in public companies. So, you know, there's not really a competitive element. We, and we, we work very closely together. Um, we have a very strong strategic relationship. Um, you know, grandeur, you know, is somewhat competitive, but I also think it's been just a very, uh, you know, just a very positive, um, uh, you know, very positive relationship there and the firms work well together. At the end of the day, I think, you know, all of us in Utah are so small in this giant financial management industry that we have so much to gain by working together versus working against each other. And I think that's the culture that that Wasatch has, has really, um, you know, ha has really engendered here in Utah. That, that takes us to an interesting segue. We hear a lot about the dynamics of the Silicon Slopes. How vibrant is Utah itself as an area for, you know, venture investments? And what kinds of companies are you seeing uh, emerge from the Wasatch? Great question. You know, we invest nationally and even globally at Cross Creek, so we're not focused on investing in Utah. But that said, you know, Utah definitely punches above its weight in the venture ecosystem. And, you know, we're fortunate to have made some great investments in both funds and later stage companies right here in Utah. You know, Utah's really well known for the great work that Silicon Slopes does, mostly in the technology and software space. But Utah's also, um, you know, strong in healthcare and, and biotech. And, uh, you know, some of the things coming out of the University of Utah, you know, a lot of people are aware of the, the recursion IPO, which is sort of sits at the intersection of, you know, data science and biotech you know, was, was a really interesting, you know, IPO coming out of the Utah system as well. So I think we've got a, a lot of good things going on in venture here in Utah. Yeah, and it's something that has transitioned here in Utah. Um, we're, we're in a much better place now than we were 20 years ago for creating this company, these types of companies. Another transition that I think we're still in the very early innings on is the transition in the venture industry, which is frankly, mostly dominated by white males. Um, talk to us about your, your role in, in, in building a firm as a woman leader in this space and kind of where, from your standpoint, where we are in getting to a space where the venture community reflects the, the broader demographics of our country. Well, when I started in the world of public management, it was very dominated by, you know, white men. Um, and it's improved. I think on the public side, there's a lot more women. Interestingly, I made kind of this mid-career change to venture and went back 20, 30 years. Venture is, is very much uh, dominated uh, by men. Um, I think the, the percentage is well under 10%. Both of the you know, the partners that are managing venture money, as well as the, as the CEOs that get backed, you know, by the venture investors. So I think the, the MVCA, which is the National Venture Capital Association, is, is working hard. I think the industry is really committed to seeing change, but we, you know, we are well behind um, even the public investment 
industry on on that front as gender as far as other diversity so i i hope we'll see more change but um it is early days on that front and has it been your experience and observation that different perspectives from a diverse sort of community actually creates some kind of investment advantage do you think that seeing things from a different viewpoint has helped you in your career absolutely I think any kind of different perspective, you know, be it gender, you know, maybe geographically where you're from, your educational background, um, provides an advantage as an investor because you have to see something that other people don't see. Um, if you're just following the crowd and, uh, you know, you're not, you need to be somewhat of a contrarian to be a great investor. And I think, you know, whether public, private, real estate, any kind of investing, I think diversity is an advantage, and that's why it's so surprising that a lot of the large, um, and it's not just venture, private equity, I mean, the, the whole private investment category is still male-dominated, and it's surprising to me that they haven't leveraged um, the advantages of diverse perspective more in this, uh, in this area, because I, I do think that it's a real advantage. Okay, well, we need to leave it there. We've been speaking with Carrie Barker, the founding managing director of Cross Creek Ventures. Carrie, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. And Have Mount, a great day. You too. And Mound Money will be right back. Please stay tuned. On the eve of President Biden's State of the Union address, small business owners delivered their own message to the 118th Congress. Government programs designed to help small business are failing, and Congress must take bipartisan action to reauthorize the U.S. Small Business Administration. A new Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Voices survey released today reveals that 70% of small business owners in the U.S. give the federal government a C or below grade for effectiveness of its programs, services, and tax credits available to small business. Additionally, 85% give the government the same bad grade for its efforts to communicate with small business owners about the essential resources and services available to them. Joining us this morning to discuss this is Skylar Nordstrom, President and CEO of Unita Mattress, Uinta Mattress, and member of Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Great. Can you take a minute to, just to tell us a little bit about, about your company and your relationship to Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Voices Program? Oh, absolutely. You're going to give me an opportunity to talk about what we do. Um, so uh, Uinta Mattress was founded nearly 40 years ago in Salt Lake City. Uh, we used to be called Diamond Mattress, and about seven years ago, we changed our name to Uinta Mattress. Um, you know, our thing that's unique about us is we have a high level of commitment to our quality, our craftsmanship, and we value um, the best of what mattress innovation and design is for your ultimate sleep experience. Uh, we're a locally owned company, and we're proud to be part of Utah and the states that we touch. Uh, we design and manufacture manufacture several uh, brands, uh, some of our original Uinta mattress brands, as well as a um, number of private label um, lineup mattresses we do for local retailers in our area. But we're also a proud licensee of Reading Industries of America, where we make brands uh, under Eastman House, Eclipse, Ernest Hemingway, Natural Dreams, and we're excited to introduce a new brand called Millbrook that we actually import from the United Kingdom. Uh, bringing the best of American and, and uh, British craftsmanship to to Utah, and you're also um, and you're also part of the Goldman Sachs Ten Thousand Small Business Voices program, um, and and let's begin by sharing with our audience. You know, Park City is a, a community with a lot of small businesses. It's obviously very critical to the Park City economy and and how we service our tourists. Nationwide, how important are small businesses to the overall economy? 
You know, the small businesses are the backbone of our economy and employ nearly half of the nation's workforce. Um, according to the U.S. Small Business um, numbers recently, um, five, and the small businesses are considered 500 employees or less, um, but 99.9% um, of all those U.S. businesses um, are the responsible for creation of new jobs. Um, it's it's critical, right? Small businesses provide more jobs. Uh, we help create careers and opportunities. Um, and successful small businesses put money back into our local communities through our paychecks and the, ta the taxes we pay. Um, and that all that creates uh, additional new business revenue generation through the SBA and programs like that. Um, it doesn't matter how small companies are. When they start, they bring lo new economies into their local cities and towns. Um, you know, drive up and down I-15 um, going to St. George and look at all those small businesses that line the freeway. Um, they're changing things um, one business at a time and they're employing more and more people. Um, in, in our businesses, uh, we're able to focus more of our energy on our customers. So you're getting better products, you're getting better customer service. We're small businesses. We feel and we hear what, what our customers are saying. Um, and we continue to drive those growth and changes through the struggles and, and things that we you know face every day. You know, when we think of small businesses, we think of very independent entrepreneurs. But it's also important for small business to have the support of government programs. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, th this survey recently suggests that there is a need to modernize and improve the SBA. Talk to us a little bit about what role the SBA should play and what role it does play. Sure. Um, you know, the last time the SBA was reauthorized was when I was graduating high school. Um, AOL was a thing. You got mail. Um, <laughs> hey, don't, laugh, don't laugh too hard because we've got Steve Case on, on Mound Money next week, who is the founder of AOL. Just a quick plug for next week's show. I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Hey, that's okay. That means they're still kicking around, but their technology's changed. Um, the SBA's technology really hasn't, right? Um, 2020 was the last time it was fully reauthorized. And, um, excuse me, I'm going to cough on you. <coughs> the, the things that um, small businesses do, right? We play a pivotal role in, in, in economic success, um, but we have to get involved in programs. And, and you're starting to see that through um, the Voices program that Goldman Sachs does. Um, we aren't large corporations and we don't have the ability to lobby. Um, we don't have deep pockets, but we're 44% of economic activity. We created 66% of jobs. Um, so two out of every three jobs is created by a small business. Um, so it's important that we have um, those federal governments and programs in place to help us continue to grow. You know, you um, go, go ahead. I was gonna say, for our listeners, t tell us a little bit about what those kinds of programs are. What does the SBA do for small business or what should it do for small business? Well, you know, at the top of the program, I think you guys shouted out at 82%, I think, was the number of small businesses give give the federal government a C or below, um, because the short answer is, I don't know. Um, I'm involved, right? And I'm engaged in, in things, and I still don't know what programs are out there. Um, you, when you find, when you go get an SBA loan, what you don't realize in most cases, and most SBA people, most people getting SBA loans don't realize this, but portion of what you're funding is as programs to help you grow your business but um, your lenders don't tell you about that and you only find out through you know in my case through a, a program like the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business um, all of a sudden I'm like oh there's all of these things that are out there but yet 
I still don't know them all. Um, there's not a simple place to go find that information, and it makes it frustrating, right? Um, we can look at the pandemic response with idle loans and the frustrations that small businesses owner, owners went through during that entire process, right? Let's not even talk about the fraud portion, but let's talk about the, the legitimate people who were trying to get the help they needed. And that does, that process was somewhat of a disaster in itself, right? Yeah, um, and I and think- created, it, created extra turmoil for small businesses. I think it highlights an important point, right? Does, does the SBA have the right programs? And of the ones that they do have that can move the needle, how do they let small business owners know about this? Um, you know, one of the things through the Goldman Sachs 10,000 uh, small businesses, they sent us a, a copy of the survey over the weekend. We were embargoed from talking about it. But one of the findings that, that I found really interesting was that small business owners are more optimistic now than they were two years ago, than they were 12 months ago. And that surprised me given you know, all the talk about the likelihood, the increasing likelihood of a recession. Talk to us about how your peers are feeling about the volatile economy and, and how small businesses might be more impacted by that than large companies. Oh, absolutely. You gotta love the entrepreneur mindset who's confident in a time of uncertainty, but that's because there's a passion that replaces some fear, right? It's amazing. Um, and, and contrary to reports that inflation has been easing, uh, we're not feeling that. Um, we're finding small businesses are finding that it's harder for us. Um, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Um, you know, my company has been impacted by inflation, as an example. Um, we're put in between a rock and a hard place. We see raw material increases of 40 percent, um, which is, you know, if everyone is, is competing at that 40 percent increase at the same starting point for raw materials, it's not that big of a deal. But bigger companies um, have better leverage and, and bigger, better access to um, certain programs um, that small businesses can't. So when we go in and a 40 percent increase, increase to me in raw materials isn't the same as a 40 percent increase to another big company, right? Because their starting point isn't the same. So at some point, our 40 percent really starts to look like 80 percent when you're comparing it to our competitors. Um, but, you know, according to that data, right, 72 percent of people like me um, have noticed the pressures increasing. Um, but and that has a 61 percent negative impact, according to that survey data. Um, but, you know, like you said, we're still positive. Um, we're seeing that consumers want American-made goods, and that's why 2023 has a positive spin in it. Um, entrepreneurs are excited for some of the shift of products coming back to the U.S., but we need capital to be able to respond to some of these things, and access to that capital is a challenge. And, um, you know, that's where most, I think it's 96% of small businesses think the federal government should be doing more to tailor programs and services to, you know, really reflect the realities of what are, what's going on in the world today, not what's going on in the world 20 years ago. Okay, well, Skyler, we thank you for joining us. We've been talking with Skyler Nordstrom with Uinta Mattress, and we've been talking about small business issues ahead of the, tonight's State of the Union address. Skyler, thank you for joining us, and Mountain Money will be back in a moment to wrap up the show. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our guests. We had a really interesting show today. Our first guest was Henry Sanderson, and he talked about his new book, Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. We then had spent some time with Carrie Barker of Cross Creek Advisors, learning a bit about uh, venture capital investing, and we just wrapped up with Skylar Nordstrom from Uinta Mattress, talking about small business issues ahead of tonight's State of the Union address. I want to uh, invite everybody to tune in next week. We have one of my favorite shows of the year, which is the day after the Super Bowl, we'll be talking with ad man Tom Darby 
Cheshire about the ads you see. If you have any thoughts about them, email them to us, mountainmoney at kpcw.org. You're listening to KPCW Park City. NPR News is next.